We are out of chapter 11. Is that exciting? Tara made fun of me a little bit this this morning when we were talking about uh, getting in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews because we had parts uh, 1, 2, 3 through a million in chapter 11. Uh, but we are out of it, and as wonderful as it is, we jump into the next chapter, and it's going to be good stuff. We're only going to cover the first two verses. They're packed full of stuff, uh, and we just have to do them justice a little bit by stopping and, and walking through them. So we continue on in our Jesus Is series with Jesus Is Motivation. Jesus Is Motivation. We go from chapter 11, which is all about the Old Testament saints, the heroes of faith that we have that we can look at and see how they followed God and just uh, the examples they were for us. Now the author points us to our own stories of faith making sure that Jesus is the highlight. So we go from their stories to our story. And of course, these believers here, the Hebrews receiving this, they were persecuted, they were going through hard times, and they knew they needed to have great stories of faith. They needed faith. And so the imagery that we see tonight is that of running a race. And we're going to walk through each part of this with that imagery in mind. And so in that, we'll see how Jesus is the motivation. But I don't know about y'all, um, I used to love races. Like, remember back in elementary school field day at the end of the year? Anyone ever have field day? Our tiny little school, we always had a field day. The last day we all just played, we'd get ribbons, we'd run races. It was all sprints, it was short stuff, but it was fun. And I'll be honest, man, I smoked those fools about every year. <laughs> I was, I was uh, athletic for a small town kid, um, meaning there's like six other boys, and so I, I, I was in the top five usually, uh, five out of six times, and so anyway, uh, I loved it, and it was great, but it was always short sprints, and then in middle school, I was still athletic and, and whatnot, but um, man, we started in gym class having to run the mile. I don't know if that was like dread for you guys when you started to get timed and you had to keep in a certain time like all of your insecurities about your athletic abilities and your your body like it, it I'm surprised they still do that but in this in this day and age but we we knew it was just a, a scary thing and I this is an ongoing joke in our family I tell Tara I've got the lungs of a neonate because I just cannot run long distances very well and I didn't do very well at all in middle school running the mile to the point where I was just dreaded it and I hated it. The problem is in the Christian life, um, we don't run sprints. We don't run sprints. It's a marathon. And so the author is letting us know tonight uh, that this marathon is something we've got to be prepared for. But you see, when it comes to the sprints, man, we can, out of sheer athletic ability, will ourselves to a victory. But with a marathon, you got to have something more. Anyone in here who's ever run long distance knows you got to have the right diet. You got to have uh, just tips and tricks in your mind. There's all kinds of mind games that happen. Like you got to have uh, a spirit that empowers you to get through this. A marathon is completely different, even though it's all running, completely different than a sprint. And so as we walk through this tonight, I want you to ask yourself, knowing that Christianity, this walk of faith, regardless of how much time you have left on this earth, it's a marathon. Are you spiritually prepared for this marathon? Are you, are you spiritually prepared to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, knowing this is a long-term deal? This is a marathon. 
So let's jump on in and let's walk through this and see how Jesus is our motivation in this race. At the end, uh, before Christmas, just kind of a side note, we had taken a couple of the cross trainings and done some question and answer session. Um, at the end, we, if we have a time, we might do that tonight. So as we're walking through this, if you have questions, feel free to keep them uh, for the very end, and we might have some opportunity there. So let's stop here in chapter 12, verse 1, the first part of it. says, therefore, you guys see therefore, what do you do? You ask, what's it there for? It's always connecting you to the previous passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Okay, here's the setup for this imagery of a race. The first thing we see is the crowd. So the author, he says, therefore, referring back to, again, chapter 11, all of these Old Testament saints, they are witnesses. Now, this is one of those verses, this is one of those passages that people can often take and, and just go uh, and think all kinds of crazy things. But the two primary understandings that people have of this verse, one is just natural when you read it, the other one um, is, is more accurate. But the two primary things that people think it's referring to would be, number one, uh, that these people, and this is what, you, if you just take it at face value, that the Old Testament saints now in heaven are watching us. So if you just read this without the context of the rest of the Bible, I don't know about you, but I would be most inclined to think that. Like, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Sounds like they're watching us. Problem with that is that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture that these old boys got free time to just stare at what we're doing on earth. Um, they're going to be glorifying God, and they're not, they're not looking down, not to mention they're not God. They can't look at all of us at once. Um, and so that probably is not the case. What is more likely is that they are witnesses to the fact that through faith, like the end justifies the means. Like this is worth it. We now in heaven have gained the promise. We, we, we can testify. We're witnesses. So it's not necessarily that they're witnessing to us. Um, or, or in, Let me back up there. It's not that they're uh, focusing on our faith as much as we in them see that the faith is worth it. Let me rifle back to Romans uh, 15 really fast. I just want to read this to you. It gives us perspective of these saints and their, um, their role for us. In Romans 15, 4, it says, For whatever was written in former days, so Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So these Old Testament saints are witnesses in us and that we look to them and say, man, their faith received the promise in the end. And that's what we need to see. Now, they witness to the good stuff. Let's talk about the crowd. Have you ever noticed when it comes to crowds, I don't know if you've been to many track and field events, many marathons, have you noticed there's a huge difference between the crowd of like a, a, a 100 meter race track and field event and that of a marathon, like the Boston Marathon or you know, you whether it be a 13 mile, 26 mile, half marathon, full marathon, whatever, like the crowds are completely different. 
They're completely different. You see, uh, uh, in track and field, whether it's Olympics or whatever, there is much more of a competitive spirit, I would say, in general. People come and they want to know who's going to win this thing. It's going to happen quick. We want to know who has the physical ability to win this thing. Like, we all want to know if we see Usain Bolt line up, we want to know, is anyone going to beat this boy? Like, someone, is someone out there, someone's got to be faster than him. Like, that's, we, we have that competitive spirit. But when you go to a marathon, it's a lot more you know what? You're number one. It's great you won, but we're going to clap for number 264 and number 3,200. Like, if you can finish this thing, we're just excited. It's so much bigger and more of a, hey, this is hard. Like, it's not about ending this quickly. This is about getting through it. And so the author's saying, man, we have a whole crowd of people testifying as winners. People who have run the race before us saying, keep on running. Keep on running. You see, the problem for us as believers is that we run a long-term race with this theme all through Hebrews. This is a theme in Hebrews of endurance and perseverance, but we run it in a world that loves to have critics for short-term sprints. You think about it. Look at your life. People are always wanting to find out about the fruit you have now. Like they want you to produce. Think about the way you're raised, all right? Just the interactions you have. It doesn't matter if you're coming from a Christian family or not. People, they, they want to know like the highlights. They want to know what you're producing. So, you know, you got grandma and grandpa. They see you at some holiday, and they're like, okay, what grade are you in? I'm in third grade now. Oh, great. Well, did you just finish up with classes for the semester? Yeah, we did that. And are you going to go and you can do sports? Yeah, I'm going to do that. And seventh grade, same thing. In high school, well, have you done this? Have you done the ACT? Have you applied for college? Have you done this? Then you get into college. Well, have you done finals? How's things going with the finals? Okay. And did you pass your class? Okay. What grades did you get? Oh, are you, do you have a boyfriend? Are you, you know these questions are all coming when you go to Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it's just, what are you doing now? What fruit can you show me right now? Because that's what we do in this culture. How many times do people say, who are you investing in long term? How much fruit are you expecting to see in 25 years? Now, you don't hear that very often, right? You hear people who are in it for the sprint. And I know you know that's discouraging, because it's like, listen, what I'm doing and what God's doing in me right now is a long-term project. And this race can't just be defined based on what happened last semester. You know what I'm saying? I love, I love my dad. He's a non-believer. I love him, though. And it's always going to be awkward for us because we come from completely different perspectives. We live two different lives. It's going to be awkward for us when he asks these questions because i got four other siblings, two brothers and two sisters. And if he's going to ask them questions in the same way that he asked me, like it just, it's not going to work. I mean, he's going to ask them, how's things going? You're getting uh, you know, you promotions at work. You're finishing your degrees. You're doing these things. And it's all uh, worldly, some of it very good, but worldly measurements. And he asked me about church stuff, and it don't make sense to him. Okay, so you got 200 people there? And I, like, okay, are you growing? You got like 250? Like, because in his mind, I'm a CEO, CEO kind of thing, all right? 
So it's always going to, like, church stuff, it doesn't translate. And the conversation is just awkward because it's like, no, I'm, I'm investing in people. There's going to be a harvest of souls one day, and it's all for the glory of God. And, like, it just don't register. It's all crazy talk. He doesn't want to hear it. It's awkward. There have been times in the past where we had run-ins where we were moving in different places. I've told you guys stories of, you know, moving from Virginia to Utah and having to tell him, hey, we don't have jobs. We don't have all of the details worked out, but we're just trusting God in it and, and being rebuked. Like, how could you? How could you marry someone and, and, and be so irresponsible to not have a plan and to have all these things worked out in advance? It's like, Dad, I don't, we don't function that way. And in his mind, all that means is, it's just irresponsible. It's like, oh my. You've got to be around people who have an eternal perspective. You've got to be around people. Some of us, we know because we have non-believers who are, are major people in our lives. We know how discouraging it can be when people are just wanting to see short-term fruit. And we're in a long-term race. There should be some fruit, certainly. But man, you know as well as I do, it can't easily always be explained. Well, here's what God's doing. He revealed everything to me last week. I just want to give you the bullet points. How often does that happen? No, it's usually God's working. He's moving. Things are happening. Can't always put it into words, but we're moving in that direction. This world doesn't want to hear that. They sound irresponsible. The world has a different measurement. I'll tell you what, as a pastor and just as disciple makers in this room, you got to get really good when you're pouring into other people's lives. You got to get really good at understanding the process of sanctification, the process of people conforming to the image of Christ, the process of people turning from sin. You got to get really good <laughs> when you see discouragement in their eyes of saying that the story's not over. The story's not over story's not over like you got you got to get good at it knowing this is a long-term investment so how would you describe the crowd you got right now you got those short-term sprint critics or you got some marathon runners who understand what god's doing in you as a long-term project You've got to have some encouragers. And let me ask you maybe the more important question. Who are you to the people around you? Like, are you, are you hard on someone right now? Because they're not showing the fruit you think they should be showing. But you know you wouldn't want that same standard held to you for your life. Because you know you're a work in project. Or you're a work in progress. Sometimes believers can be the roughest people on one another. Because we're just expecting that, man... Everything's going to be perfect in a day. Got to have eternal perspective. That's for sure. So we've got a crowd of witnesses here. The rest of chapter, excuse me, the rest of verse one, the author says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. All right, the next thing we see that we're going to park on is the race. So we see the audience, we see the crowd, we see these Old Testament saints. Now we see that we got to get ready for this thing. The imagery shifts from looking at the audience to looking at ourselves. Like, are you ready 
for this race. So what's hindering you? Because the assumption from the author is that something's dragging you down. Something is stopping you from running as well as you can this race. And he doesn't say, hey, for some of you, there's going to be some stuff that's hindering you. And, and for others, you're, you're already good to go. No, he's assuming every single one of us has stuff holding us down, pulling us back. Why? Because the author knows we live in the world. We live in a world where sin is everywhere. Temptation is everywhere. It's going to be pulling at us all the time. We have to drop some things. You know, in the first century, um, oftentimes they would have runners come into a stadium, come into wherever they're going to run, and they would have long robes on. And so when they would get up to the starting line, I, I don't know about you, but I, I couldn't run in a robe, and neither did they. They would strip down to almost being naked. And, the, and then the race would be a loincloth, essentially, in many cases. Like just showing the essence of they took everything off so they can run this. So nothing's going to bound them back. Nothing's going to hold them down. They're going to run this thing. You see now for us, you go to a baseball game. Well, what happens when you see batters in the batter box? Are they just swinging one bat? No. Sometimes they got two or three bats. Or they got one bat, but they got the big metal sleeve on it. You think they ever are going to take that to the plate? No, they don't do that. Why don't they do that? Because that would slow them down. You see, they know the only time we're ever going to have these things holding us back is when we're practicing. But when you get into the game, you don't want anything to slow you down. Nothing. And so you shed that stuff got to shed that weight. I'll tell you what, I, I hit on it earlier, but I want to go just a, a smidgen more in depth here. In the life of a believer, the process, and I say process, of repentance, of sanctification, repentance meaning that we're turning from sin, that we are seeing God as who he is and who we are in light of who he says we are and what he's done for us. And that's changing the way we view all of life. That's repentance. And sanctification being that you and I, even though the second we placed our faith in Jesus, spiritually we were made clean. If we die at that moment, we are pure in the eyes of the Father because he sees the Son in us and vice versa. But it's like having a heart transplant here on earth. It's going to take you a little while, like the rest of your life, to learn how to walk in this new identity that we have in Christ. And so when we talk about conforming to the image, your life looking more like the Christ you follow, we're talking about sanctification. But when that happens, and that's a lifelong process for us, so if you ever get to the point where you're not repenting, you're not seeing sanctification happening, then you know um, something went astray. That's God cleaning house. I wish it was like, hey, you know, here's the old life, and... Um, there's just like a goodbye note from, you know, the old life and, and that dead body. They're leaving and now the Holy Spirit comes in and you're a new creation and there's like no issues there. And it was just a smooth transition. They had their stuff out days in advance and now the Holy Spirit's occupying this space. But that's not how it goes. It's knock, knock, knock. Hey, can I come in? Yeah, you can come in and then boom, boom, boom. They're going to fight. If you don't believe me, read Romans 7. Paul had all kinds of inner turmoil going on. That old life clashing with the new life. But when he cleans house, and he's always cleaning house, 
He's always cleaning up this space because his spirit doesn't want to live in a dump. His spirit wants to live in a mansion. He's, ma- he's changing us. Don't be surprised, though, if it hurts. Sometimes the inner turmoil, for some of us, we feel like, man, I feel more inner turmoil as a believer than I ever did as a non-believer. You ever felt that before? And it's easy to feel guilty and even almost question, is it worth it? Man, I encourage you, in many cases, it is worth it. The turmoil is the old life, again, clashing with God's Holy Spirit. It's actually evidence, not that you're jacked up more than you ever realized. It's evidence that God's moving and that God's in you. Turmoil can be a great thing. It's actually proof of his work in your life. If you can, if you can continue on in sin and your conscience isn't, isn't in turmoil, that's the scary thing. Like I would be scared about that. And so what you find that in the life of a believer, as God's changing you, as he's changing your life, and you find yourself face-to-face with the sin in your life, you're going to come face-to-face with one of two pains, one of two types of pain. And you can't be surprised when you see him, but you've got to choose which one are you going to take. You can't be ambiguous. You've got to choose one or the other. The first one is the sharp pain of self-denial. God says, I'm cleaning house. Here's some sin. Here's something I want gone. I'm going to empower you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be the one who takes this. But it's going to be hard. You know, you're in that situation at work, and someone's acting crazy like they're always acting, and you're just like, oh, I want to say something, and, and it ain't going to be very nice. And then God's saying, ah, nope, don't go there. That's the old you. It's not the new you. And there's going to be a sharp pain of self-denial as you got to say, you know what, I'm not walking in those ways anymore. But the second type of pain is the pain you're going to feel if you don't take the sharp pain of self-denial. The second type of pain is the dull torment of unrepentant sin. Of knowing that he's wanting to clean house and he's telling you and he's prompting you and saying, I'm, I'm going to clean this part. And you're like, no, I don't want to turn from that. I'm just going to keep that. And I've heard all these preachers talking about give all of your life, don't hold any back. And you get used to that and it's just a dull torment of dying inside and that's miserable but that's the second option and if you do nothing that's the option you take but you see the sharp pain it's going to build you up with endurance and perseverance I am man I'm kind of fat right now i don't don't judge me i'll judge myself on this and don't don't project yourself onto me and say well you're not fat i'm like it ain't about that when you get older you start to realize your frame your age you, you know what's healthy you know what's not healthy and so for you for each one of us we we have a good idea if we're gaining a little bit too much weight never had this problem i know it's hard right But I didn't have it when I was younger. My metabolism was probably through the roof. I was always running around. Everything was great. But now uh, I'm getting into my 30s, and I'm seeing things slow down, and this belly is coming. Like I'm sucking it up constantly. I'm wearing baggy clothes. um, And... And I, I notice there's something wrong. And my family, they know, they know something's not right. Tara, she'll, she'll look at me. We got a skinny, 
kind of area in the bathroom and we would share it often. We'd be brushing our teeth next to each other and, you know, I would turn and walk past her and she could continue brushing. Now it's more like I'm pushing her over the sink as I'm getting through. And Silas, he knows that he doesn't care though. He likes it when I'm laying down on my back and we're playing and he steps on my belly and he'll stand there. And for him, for a two-year-old, it's just a balancing game as he's stepping on what feels like a jello mold. Uh, if you've ever walked on a jello mold, it will strengthen all kinds of core muscles you didn't know you had. Um, and for him, that's all it is. He doesn't care about my belly. But I know it's an issue. And Tara, every once in a while, she'll say, hey, you know, she's working out, she does her thing. Are you going to start going to the gym? Yeah. Like, when I, like if I want to do it, I can do it. I just got to commit myself to it. I used to go to the gym all the time. And I've seen that part where I've been disciplined. But this fall, finally, I got to the point where I was like, all right, I know it's getting colder, but I got to get, I got to start running. So whenever you start working out again, you always think back to the last time you were in shape and you expect that immediately or very soon after you're going to be like that. And I was running down the block. We just live a few blocks from here. I was running down the block, and I had, uh, you know, some fancy cool new app, right? Like, you know it's been a long time since you worked out when now there's so much extra gear and stuff that, like, they never had. Like, people have iPods on their arms now. Like, last time I worked out, we didn't do that. I don't think, I don't think that those things even existed the last time I worked out on a regular basis. Some of you think it's crazy. But and so now I got this, this thing that's telling me how far I've run. I remember looking down at .15 miles. I felt more pain in my lower extremities. I, I was fearing for myself. It was the middle, uh, like it was, it was early, early fall, but it was still warm out. If you know you're out of shape, when you start running and your lungs feel like you're breathing air in the Arctic, like it, it's like my lungs are frozen and it's hot. You know, like they're seizing up. You're just like, oh my gosh. I'm having a panic attack. No, I'm, I don't know what's happening. And my body was just aching. I mean, my bones were aching, and I was just, I was like, gosh, this is pathetic. So I start walking, and, and when I make it through, I maybe go like half a mile total, half of it running, half of it walking, and I'm, I'm just half dead. And, and, but I knew, though, because I've done this before, I knew if I could just get through that first initial, like, pain, then I could go into endurance, and, and it'd be all right. Even though there's always going to be sticking points, but if you can get through that first, first little bit, well, I didn't work out then for like another week because that's how long it took to recover. And then I didn't work out pretty much since then. <laughs> and I gave up. And last week, Tara took Silas to Kansas City for this baby shower thing, and I was painting the house. I was painting inside by myself. I bent over, and I tore my pants and I, I'm telling you what, I didn't just tear my pants like a little tear. I tore it like, we're talking like over 12 inches tear on the backside. I just took a picture and, and sent it and said, I think it's time I started working out again. But I'm telling you what, <laughs> it feels so far away to think of endurance and perseverance and getting past the point of like extreme pain in all of my body. I look back six, seven years ago. I can't even believe it's six, seven years ago. And I think, man, I used to go to the gym six days a week. And, and it was, I was just helped. I could take things. And now it feels hopeless. It feels hopeless. It's like, I don't think I'll ever get back there. Some of us, we've been walking with habitual sin. Stuff that he's been trying to clean house of for a long time. And we've denied the spirit 
promptings, and so then now we don't hear from God much at all. And we think back to what it was like when we first fell in love with God and, and being able to hear his voice and to respond and to walk in obedience and just the joy of obedience. And it feels so far away, it feels impossible. I don't know if any of you are there. But it's not impossible. And we're going to see in a second the motivation and how we get out of this hole. But man, we got to start shedding the weight. And I love in here, there's a Greek word right here, chi. And some translations take this out, which would do it a, a huge injustice because it says, lay aside every weight and, that's a big and, sin, which clings so closely. I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking about the weight that needs to be shed, I'm thinking this is all sin, right? And it's separating it, and the author's saying every weight. That means there might be some good things holding you back. But athletes ready to run the race with endurance and perseverance don't think about just, hey, what's good for my body compared to bad. They think what's best and better, like all the way up. And so there might be some good things in your life that you think are good. And you're like, you know what, I'm going I'm to keep on doing this. Uh, man, I volunteer a lot in these areas and I'm involved with all this other different stuff. And like, Jesus might just be looking at you and say, you're busy. And those good things just overtook the God stuff I'm asking you to do. You need to reprioritize a little bit. And you think you're running the race more fully and better than ever. And I'm telling you what, you're running a race, but it ain't my race. It's the race you thought you died to in this world a long time ago. And you jumped back in. And you're thinking, I thought it was good stuff. And he's like, it might have been, but it ain't anymore. Or the sin that, so cl- that clings so closely. We talked about this. You know that sin. But in context, it's important. This isn't just any old sin. It might be for you, but for the Hebrew people, what's the context of the sin that they struggle with all throughout this book? All these references to Israel in the Old Testament, it's the sin of unbelief. It goes back to faith. For them, that's the context. That's the sin that clings so closely. But man, when you throw that off, you'll find the endurance coming. Now this is where it would be easy for me to just say, you know what, you know what's right, go do it. And then we all go out there, we feel guilty and miserable, right? Because we're trying to do it in our own strength. But it don't end there. Verse 2, we're going to see our motivation. The author says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, of our faith. Third thing we see is the motivation. So verse one is all about us, and now we're going to walk in faith like these Old Testament heroes, but the author doesn't do, I love this, you got to see this theme all throughout scripture, because we preach it so much different than it is. We preach it like I just said, hey, you know what's right, stop doing bad stuff, just go do good stuff, like that's how we preach it so often. Then we do it in our own strength, and we fail, and we find, hey, I need something more. And I'll tell you what, you, re, you dig into Paul's writings, you dig into this right here, and you find out no good author 
No one in the Bible is telling you just to go do what's right and do good stuff without telling you it's Jesus Christ that compels you and sustains you to doing it. They always give the gospel as the foundation for it. They don't say just go do this on your own. That's not what this life is about. Not at all. Tell you what, lately, lately, um, it seems like I say this every other week, but it se- I am more and more aware of my own mistakes. The larger the church grows, the more interactions I have with people, the more I realize I'm flawed. I see that all over the place, and it's easy to just, man, beat yourself up about it. And I, I, I see just how I, I fall short in my interactions, whether it's the leadership team or just people in the church I'm pastoring or just folks in the community. And I just get to the point where there's, there's one thing, and I turn around, another interaction, and I'm like, oh, I fell short there a little bit. And then another interaction, I fell short there. And it just piles up. It piles up, and I just get miserable. I get miserable. I'll find that that miserable stuff comes when I'm not abiding in Jesus. This morning I woke up, and I just like, ah, just angry in my sleep at who I am, you know, just kind of sick of who you are. I don't know if you ever feel that way. I woke up just tired of Ryan. And I, as I was getting ready, I was just praying. I was just praying, and I was like, you know what, God, I can't, like if I sit here and analyze all of my mistakes and personality flaws, it's going to drive me crazy. God, I just, I need to talk to you. Who are you? Who am I? And I hear him say, I love you, Ryan. I used to hear that all the time. Why does it feel like it's been so long since I last heard God say he loves me? It used to be how every morning started. That feels like it's been a while. God, you got to hate me now. You, I feel like condemning myself. I don't condemn you. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. But abide in me, which is the same as biblical, these passages, these verses, all these things that he's talked to me before. And it's just a good father taking me by the hand. And I, uh, I say, okay, all right, I'm overwhelmed. I came here and, I, and there was tons to do, tons on my plate. And I, I, st- I stepped back and I just spent some time with the Lord. And he told me, he said, Ryan, several weeks ago, I told you to give $300 to this church planning agency that, that's going to, send out church planners all over the world and and I want you to go and I want you to sign up. I've literally had that on my computer screen every day for a couple weeks. Like the website's pulled up and I'm just like, oh, I gotta look into it more. You know, you gotta be responsible. You gotta be a good steward. I don't want my money going somewhere shady. And like, like there's all these excuses and yet I don't look into it at night and then during the day. And it's always been like hanging there and he said, do it, Ryan. And I, oh, I was so busy, but I just had to, I had to clean it off I gave him a call. I said, let's talk about this. I spent time, and, and, and I did what I knew he was asking me to do. But all through it, I didn't do it the way that I thought I would do it, which is, hey, he told me to do it, just do it. I did it, and he explained to me, as I'm praying, the why he wants this done. Now he saved me. Now he's going to save other people. Now the gospel's going to spread. And now it's going to say, and all these things, and it's like, okay. Okay, I'm not just doing what I think God wants me to do. I'm doing it because he's compelling me to. He's talking me through it. He's walking like a good father does.
Sometimes you just got to get back to the basics. Sounds crazy. But there's a million different reasons why you and I are walking the Christian walk. A million different. And I don't care what brought us here. I don't care what our, well, I just wanted a better life. Or I just, I just wanted, um, you know, to do what my parents always did when I was growing up. They took me to church, so I just want to, I don't care what that is. But I think it's incredibly important what the motivation is today. I don't care how we got here, but I do care how we're walking now from here on out and what motivation. And you say, well, it doesn't really matter how much the motivation. No, it does matter to God what the motivation is. Because I bet you there's a lot of people in this room who know what's right and what's wrong. The question isn't whether we know what's right and wrong. The question is, are we abiding in Jesus? And are we doing it because he's compelling and motivating us to do it? Or are we just doing it for whatever reason? These two words right here, founder and perfecter. If you've got a different translation other than the ESV, you'll probably notice they are changed. From the Greek, there's several different ways you can translate them. Founder means that he is not only the object of our faith, but he's also the forerunner. Back in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, remember we walked through with Melchizedek, it said that the author said that Jesus is a forerunner. He's gone in advance of us. He's laid the foundation of this whole thing. So it can be translated author. Like he authored this whole walk. Like you don't have to wonder how to do this. You don't have to try to do this on your own. He authored it. He wrote the book on how to follow the Father. He's the author, he's the pioneer, he's the initiator. So he doesn't just say have faith. He says, you have faith in me and I'm going to give you faith. He's doing the work. He initiates faith. And then through his death and resurrection, he is the reason for faith. So he's the originator, he's the founder of this thing. But then it says he's also the perfecter. The perfecter can be translated, uh, and you might see it in your Bible, as finisher. So the idea is, he started this thing, he's the beginning, the end, the alpha, the omega, you know all of this, but he started this thing, he's the reason for the faith. These Old Testament saints, great stories of faith. Jesus is the reason for the faith. He's the one that it's pointing to, he's the giver of faith, and he's the finisher of faith, meaning we don't have to worry about how this thing's going to end. He's got it in control. So he's the beginner, but he's also the one who's going to finish the job. And the beauty of the gospel is that it's not just the starting line. Okay, I heard the message, and now I know that Jesus is good and all that stuff. I'm going to learn about Jesus, but I'm going to start walking. I hear people talk all the time. I want more sermons on Christian living. Abide in Jesus. No, no, no. I want more sermons on Christian living. What are you talking about trying to live outside of Jesus when you follow Jesus. Like, how does that even work? And yet, there's so many of us that are like, okay, no, I accepted the gospel and I heard the message and I placed my faith in him. Now I just want to know how to live it. And it's like, <laughs> you live in him. And it flows out of that. If you want us just to be religious and tell you rights and wrongs, you came to the wrong place. We used to talk about planning churches and, and, and multiplying churches, and we didn't just go in Utah or, or Nebraska. You abide in people. Hey, you got to have facilities, and you got to have this, you got to have that. No, we would preach this. You abide in Jesus, and everything's going to flow out of that. 
churches are going to start. Disciples are going to be made. But you abide. Don't look for a set of rules outside of abiding. You see, the, the Christian life, I'm telling you what, it can be fool's gold. It looks, so the, the good stuff and the bad stuff in the Christian life so often look identical. But you and I, we don't know each other's heart. We don't know the motivations we're doing this for. And this is scary. This should be one of the scariest but yet most beautiful things that we have in Scripture. Most beautiful thing in that we have Jesus as the motivation. We don't have to do this on our own. Never at any point in this life do we have to be scared of, well, okay, somehow i got to do this outside of Christ. No, everything he asks you to do, he, he is going to empower you to do through his spirit. But it should be scary because we, we could look like we have it all together and not be abiding in him at all. Do you search your heart? Do you invite the Spirit to search your heart for the motivations as to why you're doing what you're doing? That's huge. That's huge. I hear a lot of people talking about the Christian life and not talking much at all about Jesus. And every single thing that motivates us will be tested by fire. A lot of times the idolatry comes out in the midst of tragedy comes out in the midst of hardship when you're pressed and pinched from every side what you're leaning on will come to the top it will surface it will surface and i don't want to find out that it's something other than jesus and you say you know what i think i'm doing good right now i I think my motivation for living holy and, and all this stuff going to church i think it is jesus and if you're honest though you might say Eh, I'm just kind of in a groove now. If I said, why did you do what you did today? Why did you come here tonight? Why did you do anything that you thought God might ask you to do tonight? For a lot of us, the answer might be, well, I'm just, I'm I'm in a groove. This is how I I do it. This is what I do on Wednesdays. I'm telling you what, you can follow routine and not follow Jesus. You can follow status quo and not follow Jesus. Say, well, why did you serve someone today? Well, because I want to be a good example for the people around me. That in and of itself, that might be very noble, but you can follow the (laughs) dependency you might have on man's opinion of you and not follow Jesus. Say, why why are you doing what you're doing for God? Well, I just have a hard time saying no. So that's why I got wrangled into doing this. There's a bunch of good Christians doing what they're doing for God simply because they don't want to say no to people and let them down. You can follow guilt and definitely not be following Jesus. When we wake up in the morning, we need to be able to start this conversation with God, looking at Jesus saying, I'm here because of you. I'm sustained by you. I only want to do what you want me to do. I want to be motivated by you. I want to be prompted by you. And I want to finish this thing by walking in you.
There's nothing scarier than seeing your own lack of abiding in Jesus and the ones that are around you because you're making disciples of people and you start to see they're living in their own strength and they're not in Christ, they're not abiding in Jesus, they're not living, they're not spending time in the presence of the Father. And you're saying, hey, you need to stop doing that. And then they, you realize they learned that from who? From you. That's scary. Last but not least, The rest of chapter 12, verse 2 says, Who for the joy, so this is Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, the last thing we see is the path to finish. So now we see from way back in the beginning, we see in in chapter, excuse me, in verse 1, it says that we have this race set before us, but now we see how to do it in Jesus, and it says that what was set before him, Okay, so the reason he did it was because he saw a joy, knowing that in his death and resurrection, life was going to be brought to many by going through the hardships, the struggles, everything God willed for him to do. Like, this isn't easy. This is all hard stuff. That he's going to be sitting at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us. His joy didn't come in knowing that he was going to somehow experience salvation like you and I are hoping. But he knows he's going to be with the Father. And he's not excited. He's not, he doesn't say, well, he loved the shame. No, he despised the shame of the cross. But it wasn't an option to not go. Because he knew the joy in life it would bring to other people. Jesus saw the big picture and let it rule his everyday life. Jesus saw the big picture and let it dictate the details of the everyday stuff. That's what it looks like to run a marathon in Christ. Is that we have an eternal perspective that says, man, I'm going to make disciples, but I know this is going to be hard. I know I might be ridiculed. I know people might get ticked off at me. I know there's going to be times where I'm going to overstep my bounds and then things. I'm going to do it because I know that life in him, just like life in me, is going to be worth it. And it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be good. There's going to be pain in the path, but I'm going to have an eternal perspective. You and I are so used to, on earth, the end not justifying the means. We have end goals all the time. I want to get that degree. Oh, but then you know what? A couple nights staying up till midnight studying doesn't sound worth it. I'm going to drop out a semester. Well, I, I, want, I want a marriage that's healthy and strong. Well, you meet the person you think you should be with, and then you have a little bit of conflict, and you bail. Yeah, I wanted that, but it ain't worth it. And Jesus is saying, I see the end result, and I'm telling you, it's worth it. These Old Testament saints, uh, we see and we are experiencing the end result, and we're telling you, it's worth it. You don't have to be let down like the things of the world are going to let you down. The means, the hardship, the pain justifies you going through it to get to the end result. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. And Jesus tells us in Luke 14 to count the cost. He says no builder is going to start a project without counting the cost. No warrior is going to go into uh, a battle without seeing if his army can overtake the other people. Like they're going to sit down, they're going to count the cost. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to count the cost. The church has long been known too much 
for being a group of people in Christ that are surprised when pain and hardship come in the name of Jesus. Well, I came to place my faith in Jesus because I wanted healing and I wanted peace and I just wanted, I wanted easier stuff. And there's certainly peace. There's certainly all the good stuff. But Jesus doesn't say it's just going to be easy. He says it's going to be hard. You need to count the cost. We need to be a church that sees the hard stuff in the name of Jesus, the stuff that he's saying, I want you to walk through this, and it's going to bring me glory. We need to see it and meet it head on for the glory of Christ. And not be surprised when the tough stuff is tough. But to know it's worth it. I don't know who you're pouring into. I don't know what's going on in your life. But the author reminds us one more time. It is worth it. God's plan, God's will for your life is going to be tough. But it's going to be worth it. And Jesus will always and always needs to be that motivation. He calls you to it. He compels you through it. He sustains you. He walks with you. And he's going to be the one you see face to face in the end. And it's worth it.